You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. ...show, which is a legal talk, alhamdulillah. Legal talk has been a very popular and uh, one of our favorite guests is uh, none other than Hafiz, uh, attorney Muhammad Kowalia. And, uh, you know, there's something we share in common is that uh, we have a passion for da'wah. And alhamdulillah, it is uh, something that, uh, you know, in the annals of history, you'll notice that da'wah was done and is being done uh, by those that are, you know, passionate Muslims, are those are, that follow the commandments of the Quran and you know, address the Yahud and the Nasara. Uh, they must not tell uh, Salata, don't bring in Trinity and, uh, you know, desist, uh, do not say Father, Son, Holy Ghost and all those things. But Alhamdulillah, it is not an easy field, which is a field that, you know, sometimes you can compromise yourself and you can compromise the deen of Islam. But Alhamdulillah, I celebrate on this uh, platform too. He's our attorney, as I said, the Hafiz, uh, Muhammad Kubadia. And I can tell you something else, people. This evening, we have a very powerful topic for you. And we'll be uh, discussing uh, the state and your property, a South African viewpoint, and many other things that will come through. Hafiz, uh, Attorney Muhammad Kubanya, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, how are you doing this fine, uh, beautiful evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And with me, of course, thank you, Cowboy Shafat Khan. Always great to speak to you. Friday evenings, you keep us busy. You keep us, keep the vibe going. We don't go to parties on Friday nights, but we've got our own party happening here. We've got you and me together discussing finances. When it comes to Fulus, everybody gets excited. Yes, sometimes we get tired of the old legal jargon. But today, tonight's discussion is about Fulus. And when it comes to money, we got everybody's attention. What do you say about that, Shafat? Well, you know, it's uh, some people said the money makes the world go round. But for us, you and I, you know, what makes our world go round is uh, being Allah, being his messenger, giving the message. And uh, maybe some say I'm following the Fulus, uh, but uh, maybe the Fulus is following us, Afisaba, uh, you know, Allah <laughs> Alam. But, uh, you know, let's talk about human beings. You know, they come into the dunya. And a sense of belonging comes through. And how does it come when you have a address, which is a temporary address and some, you know, in the application form. So what's your permanent address? And, you know, only now we realize as we are elder, elder and much mature, there's no such thing as permanent address. You know, it's all temporary. But uh, on a more serious note, then, you know, you get your address or perhaps you are renting in a place, you get your address. And then and only then can you apply for your documentation. And, and then it's, um, you know, approved as a valid documentation. But owning a property, owning a land, you know, it gives a human being perhaps a sense of belonging on, in the dunya, perhaps a sense of a dignity. And uh, perhaps uh, someone that, you know, when someone asks you, uh, you know, uh, Mohammed, where you live, and you say, yeah, I live in 121 Houghton, uh, you know, in the skyscraper there, I, I live with, that's my penthouse and so forth. But it gives you a sense of, um, you know what, I'm uh, I'm legal. Talk to me about that uh, type of scenario, Mohammed, and uh, yeah, in, in, in the context where the, um, thousands, maybe a majority of the people don't even have a permanent address in this country. Talk to us, Mohammed. <laughs> yeah, that's why we've got to introduce laws like FICA, because people are just disappearing today. We have an email address and your email address follows you wherever you are in the world. So you don't need the days where you have postal addresses and postmans and deliveries. You can see the collapse of the postal system in this country. It's as a result of us moving into a different realm and a different vibe. 
So uh, it's good to know that we have some sort of permanent address in this world. As permanent as it is, it's only very temporary. And uh, it's a temporary joy and a temporary existence. Today, with the way the world is actually moving, I'm actually quite concerned that in future we may not even require physical permanent abodes because today you, you're working in this part of the world and next month you're working in another part of the world or maybe next year you're working differently. You're going out, you're taking your wife and your kids and you're resettling. So we become like a global village, as people say. And maybe like that, people will stop investing so much in property because why buy property and then go through the perils and the risks of having property that you're not using? And um, it comes with its costs and its disadvantages. So in the time to come, maybe the last thousands of millennia, uh, people have, uh, have, have are shifting away from that ideology of having permanence at, a, at one specific place. And we'll be moving, we'll be living like travelers uh, in the future. Uh, so who knows, maybe that's the way of the future, Shafat. You know, Mohammed, uh, you say it, uh, mashallah, quite eloquently there. But I've been thinking, you know, I want to take you back, way back uh, during the time of apartheid. And here was uh, the government, uh, you know, telling, okay, I've demarcated lands uh, for you, Indians. I've got uh, Lanesia for you. I've got Chatsworth for you. And I've got Lodium for you. And I've got all these different areas, 500 and a plot. And here there were the Indians, you know. And uh, they're buying buying it. You know, the Indians had a, a priority list, and one of the main priorities are buy the land and then we'll build. And you notice uh, that they did buy. And I think uh, the uh, apartheid government didn't expect them to be so innovative. They bought these plots. They didn't make, you know, two by two shanties or something. They really built. And if they could, they went three stories high, uh, Muhammad. What was that in that Indian that the Indian still does. I mean, even he took a place like Phoenix in, in, in the RSA, I'm talking about Phoenix in, in, in Durban North, uh, took the area and turned it into something else. Even if you go to Chatsworth, you'll notice that most of those houses have been turned into uh, luxurious homes, uh, Mohammed. So talk to me about uh, the Indian uh, innovation. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose we've always tried to look out for ourselves and our communities. With that came our families. So a person never worried about his immediate family, but sometimes he would worry about his extended family. Where's my mom going to live? Where's my brother's going to stay? My, this brother of mine financially needs assistance. So if he build a house, a double-story house, I'll have a separate quarters for him, entrance, exits. This was a mentality of people. Even if you looked at FITAS, and I'm sure the Durban CBD had exactly the same type of, um, type of mentality, is that people purchased their shops or uh, conducted their businesses and on top of their businesses was their, was their homes. And when I went to India, I actually saw the reality of that. I said, oh, this is where our forefathers learned that from. They would actually live on top of the places that they work. That means that in so many ways, they would be more dispensable, um, so they would be more available to go out and to be able to service the customers and to work longer shifts, longer hours, and families could be involved. So in, in case the husband wanted to go out and pray, and or he had some work, you know, his wife or his children or siblings could take over for half an hour, an hour in the system. So it was a practical solution and people then lived in that type of environment. What did that come with? Look at look at Fitas, two, three masjids in close proximity to each other. So uh, you had the 15th Street Masjid and the 19th Street Masjid, which is like just four or five streets apart. But because it was so overpopulated, our community saw a need to build two masjids um, so close to each other because it became full and people used to uh, frequent 
those masjids. So what that community's got established and family's got established and, you know, the extended family. So instead of three brothers buying three different houses, they would all buy, buy invest in one property and they would develop that property in a way that made it financially viable for them to spend that money. At the same time, there was some sort of financial benefit. So in many years to come, they would find that property would be worth something and they as a family unit have acquired something which they can actually use as, so to say, retirement savings or inheritance for the children. Gee, Mohammed, and also you found that, that you know, when our elders built in, uh, in, in, in uh, you know, affluent areas, uh, they always they put up a flat sort of, du- uh, uh, those days we didn't talk about duplexes, but uh, these are b- uh, business sites and all. If they built uh, the flats, they always wrote the, uh, you know, Ibrahim Musa 1938, or the Fakhruddin's building 1912, or you get, uh, you know, a jazz by a certain times, or you get a Kuvadia that built it in 1958. Uh, what was it that made our elders do that, uh, 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 Muhammad? I, I see very early on, obviously, you know, they must have realized there's value in owning property and there's value in owning buildings. That's why you'd find that in the early years, the different trusts were formed. Like we talk about uh, the Anjuman Trust, for example. This was a family trust that would have been set up for the purposes of investing into fixed assets, large scale. So block of flats and buildings, commercial buildings, maybe even a madrasa and a masjid, all of that included in the trust. And people saw that as as assets. And remember, those people that came from India, especially that came as merchants, they were professionals already by the time, or professional businessmen by the time they had come into this country. So they understood the mechanisms of finances when they went out to certain countries like Uganda and, 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 and Nairobi and Tanzania, you found that they became market leaders and they established themselves in the economic empires that, 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 that established there. So what I'm saying is this, we understood very early on the importance of having fixed property as part of a person's uh, uh, financial uh, financial makeup. And with that, uh, our forefathers realized this hundreds of years ago. So when they came into the country, they made sure that that's part of the, the part of the assets. That was the part of the assets. And also, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, they brought in, when they got in here, Mohammed, I still see this happening. And uh, the mentality of, you know, bringing family members from that part of the world into this part uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the country. You know, if you have uh, large businesses, but you find that, you know, the accent is not right. You say, hey, but uh, you smile, man. Who, who's there? Hello, this is my uh, cousin from the Gam. You know, that we brought them in. And, you know, you, you, you trust them more, you know, this and that. And you'll, you, you'll get that uh, uh, scenario coming through. But uh, you found that this was okay during the time of apartheid. But uh, now with the BEE coming in, you know, you're bringing family members from India and that. Uh, are there any uh, repercussions there, Mohammed? Well, they've become, the government has definitely tightened up. Over the years of progressing, we're seeing that they're tightening the news. They're not allowing people to come in. I know South Africans that are struggling for years because their spouses have come from overseas, mainly from India. And in India, a person wants to come into South Africa, but he sometimes got to provide guarantees about um, 20,000 rands worth of equivalent of guarantees to the the embassy there. So there's definitely now these measures and mechanisms being put into place because they're seeing that foreigners are coming into this country and foreigners are establishing themselves. Our uh, Indians uh, and Pakistanis 
Bangladesh, especially from the Indian subcontinent, love it in this country because there's an opportunity to get jobs, there's an opportunity to build up a little bit of a financial nest egg, and Islam is good for them or whatever religious background they're coming in, whether it's Hinduism or something, they always have, they can find their feet. There's a big Indian community in Durban and Johannesburg and in Pretoria and even in Cape Town. So even if they establish themselves in one of these places, you find that um, this is this is how it's been over the years. And now that things are becoming difficult, so they're finding maybe submissive ways to get into the country. You're finding that maybe they have to now jump borders or they've come in on tourist visas and these types of things. And the government is trying its best now to prevent that uh, mechanism from being abused. And they, they've been putting systems and measures into place uh, to prevent this from happening in future. But Allah knows best because it's a difficult situation for everybody concerned. When you look at the condition in India, you can understand why they want to come through. You know, when you speak to some of them in India, they tell you, you know what, there's no jobs avail- available for us. And now that we've been outnumbered by the Hindus, you find in many ways that we, um, uh, we've been ostracized from the community or we've been uh, uh, we've been sidelined from jobs and opportunities and tenders and from government appointments and all these things. So you can understand the level of frustration that comes out from their side. And, you know, we, we once again take our hat off to our forefathers who made this change and transition and decided to migrate hundreds of years ago because if it wasn't for that, maybe it would be us on the other side of the fence. Yeah, Muhammad, you know, the talk in this country is all about land expropriation or what the ANC will do. And then you have the populist parties like Julius Malema and uh, Black Land First and all, you know, fueling uh, this thing. Oh, we'll expropriate your land. We will take your land and there'll be no compensation and so forth. I mean, you, you look at the area like the area that I live in, in Durban South, uh, uh, there's an, uh, they, they want to invest 50 billion, 60 billion uh, uh, rands or dollars, I don't know why, but uh, they say that the overseas uh, investors are afraid of uh, the policy of the ANC government and maybe even the land that, that they're investing or they, you know, uh, they develop and the government just uh, comes up and says, right, I'm expropriating, I'm taking the land without compensation. I mean, how many of them must be getting the government, even our own people, uh, Mohammed? your thoughts? Of course, I mean, we know specifically that the EFF, this is one of the political trump cards is that they've been pushing as part of their manifesto from for expropriation of land without compensation. What they are saying is too much of the land has been allocated to the white farmers, and of course the non-whites have been given um, the, the raw end of the deals. So as a result of which they're going to now try to, they're going to try to find mechanisms within legislation to remove this, um, to, 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 to expropriate this land without financial compensation because it's going to be too expensive to financially uh, afford or financially comply, financially uh, remunerate landowners for their property. So yes, uh, without a doubt, the ANC looks to be holding the fort in that regard all along. But you know, ANC's power is, is definitely now on the win. And as a result of which you're going to find that they may have to relent and start maybe entertaining or even considering some of these issues. And you're already seeing that some these questions are becoming more obvious within political circles. Um, I personally think that expropriation is not good for investment because it scares people from investing. It scares people out of the country. It scares corporates from wanting to invest too much. I mean, for example, the looting in this country a couple of years ago, what did it lead to? It led to many businesses closing down. 
It led to many corporates revisiting and reconsidering their position in this country, whether they should be investing money because overnight their fortunes can change. What happens with expropriation is very, very much the same thing, that the government comes and legally loots and removes everything you own. And we, unfortunately, we're loving that even in today's day and age, it's become a reality. Until recently, we did not even believe, you and me had to have a discussion five years ago that lead could even take place in the country. We said, rubbish, this is not, we, we, we're too safe and secure in this country to even consider looting as being one eventuality. But the same people in Uganda 50 years ago thought under the rule of Idi Amin that nothing is going to happen to us. We're running the economy and we're comfortable where they are. And Idi, Idi Amin then issued an edict to say 90 days from now, all the Indians need to leave the country. And irrespective of who you are or what you owned or what you did for the country, at the end of the day, you just became a foreigner in that country and you had needed, and you had only 90 days. So what could you take in 90 days? What you could carry on your back. Everything got destroyed. Everything lost. And Uganda hasn't recovered since in terms of financial. So a situation in South Africa, you know, we don't know because we pray Allah protects us. But end of the day, living in a highly volatile situation. Anything can happen. You establishing what you consider to be a nice financial nest egg for yourself. You have movable property, you have immovable property, you have cars, you have all businesses, you have all these things running. But the reality is we're living in Africa, we're living in a community that's volatile, we're living in an environment that's volatile, highly explosive, it's election year next year. Is the ANC going to sing a different song in order to win and recover some of those votes? Are they eventually then going to stick to their guns and another political party like the EFF is going to gain strength and they may be the next president of the country? How do our fortunes look? We don't know. Yeah, Mohammed. Then, uh, then I, I'm recalling a story about my uh, late aunt, uh, you know, Jubifoy, and uh, they were quite wealthy in Maputo, where they had a lot of flats. And the husband actually had the franchise for Ag, uh, Agfa Color. I mean, you know, those days it was all about camera and films and so forth. But they had to virtually pack up and run from there. The flats were taken over. The you know the the company that they own. And Alhamdulillah, when they came uh, to South Africa, I mean. Uh, I think Kaka knew how to invest his money and all that, but they carried on. But they they they, they lost everything in Maputo, uh, Mohammed. And Allah forbid uh, things like this could happen here. Could that happen here? As much as we thought looting would not happen in this country, looting happened in this country. It was undeniable. Today we're still reeling from the consequences of looting. How many businesses, especially in the Durban area, businesses with existence for 100 years ceased to exist since then. How many fortunes got lost overnight? How many people were uprooted and had to flee and leave their businesses and their homes and their things because of fear of looting? So our situation in this country is highly volatile. The situation is not getting any worse. If 10 years ago we had to have a discussion about load shedding, water being polluted, these types of things, we thought to ourselves, maybe that could happen in another part of Africa or another part of the world. But in this country, we seem to have everything. There's enough electricity. Our water quality is good. We're having everything. But today we're living in an environment, me and you can't do this interview and first we first check what's the load scheduling schedules like in your part in my part of the world before we can have this how do our businesses expect to expect it to function so many farmers are there rely on electricity and they and their wares are getting uh, rotten as a result of which so many businesses need electricity just to function day to day without which they have to close their doors now for six hours a day eight hours a day we're having load shedding we would never have thought in the 1990s when ANC was coming into government and everything was handed to them on a golden platter, we assume that things are going to get better. We never thought 30 years hence 
our lifestyles are worse than our parents' lifestyles. Our parents still had electricity 24 hours a day. They still opened their tap and fresh, clean, pure, hygienic water was coming through the taps. Today we live in on bottled water. We never even imagine in today's day, Jane, we'll be paying five and ten rand for a bottle of water. But our lives have have come to that. Who would have thought when you build a house nowadays, you have to actually consider where you're going to put your inverter and where you're going to run all your put your batteries and where you're going to run all your cablings. This was a thought consideration that an average homeowner never even considered until a few years ago. You know, Mohammed, you got a barakah in you. Your sweet tongue that is blessed. I'm not making a fork tongue. You heard what I said. Sweet tongue is blessed with honey. And, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, our, uh, you know, great, great grandparents, I mean, they were lucky. They had that coal stove, which was 10 in one. It was like a geezer. It was an oven. It was, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, your, your, it was your a conversation piece. It was <laughs> a center of conversation for the whole family. It was the get together spot. Yeah, and you know, it really, it really added value to uh, life. It, as you said, in a cold winter's time, you and that that type of stove was on twenty four seven because it was the go to place, the kitchen. I mean, that has been lost, and it seems as if the way insan is carrying on. Uh, they say, you know, we're going. We, there's no such thing as stone age. Going back to where we belong, uh, Muhammad. What's your thoughts? So very true, so very true. And you know what? <laughs> the funny thing is, funny thing for me that is, you know, which I need to now put into perspective. Is when you read the hadith about Nabisus and talking about the end of times and people traveling on animals and you thought to yourself, wow, is, is, it, is it actually going to be such that we're going to be traveling on camels and donkeys and in the times of the Jajal and, you know, in times of Nomadi, but the way things are going, it looks like with petrol going the way it is, too expensive, and the resources coming to an end, and that you're looking at the way the electricity grid is running and things are going. It's only a matter of time that we have to start reverting and going back to the things. Did you even think, you know, a few years ago that, that you consider um, candles and electrical rechargeable products and all that because this country situation is going to be so bad? So, yes, you know, talk about the, the, the cold stove environment. Let me tell you, People are putting these things practically in their homes. They're going back to 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 either gas, if not gas, they're going back to to coal and to wood, fires and furnaces in their homes because we know for a fact that this winter is going to be a very hard winter. So yes, some of the considerations is exactly that. It's not freeumed. It's not crazy. It's not unnatural to be thinking along those lines. That's actually forward thinking. So that will. Is for future backward thinking is forward thinking. Let's go back at least, you know, with my donkey, I don't need electricity. With my horse, I don't need electricity. I can go up and down and I don't have to worry about um, these types of things. But uh, the, the cold stove is definitely something that I think that a lot of people will be considering in the near future. Yeah, Mohammed, you know, as you say, the cold stove, I mean, that's cast iron. How are you going to carry it and so forth? I don't know how they did it those days. But today, all these, even those tubs you had, you remember the 1930s and 90s, it was all cast iron and uh, things were ready, uh, the, 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 the real stuff. You know, whilst you're talking about India, and my mind was running through a, through a pool of thoughts about the Hindutva government of uh, Modi, you know, the BJP and uh, uh, the Islamophobes, or, you know, th through and through, where they are, you know, they come and uh, take, uh, masjid uh, demolishes just like how Israel does and uh, demolish it, uh, claim it, and uh, build a temple on it. And then uh, they go for uh, you know different uh, individuals whom they claim okay, he's got terrorist connections. 
without having a trial, without having a case, going and demolishing the uh, buildings or even killing them. Uh, India has become uh, so much like Israel. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? And the Indians, are, that's, uh, this is why creating so much of paranoia on people running and coming to our country, uh, Mohammed. India is not like Israel. India is Israel. India is an extension of Israel. I was told when I was in Goa that the Israeli soldiers come to Goa as their holiday destination. We saw Modi and the relationship that he has with the Israeli government going there, sharing resources, sharing information. They have a common enemy, and that is Islam. And the reality of the situation is that they will, as long as Islam is a thorn in their side, they will continue to be the best of friends. And they learn by each other. So if they see that Israel can get away by illegally occupying Muslim areas, they're going to do exactly the same thing. The scare stories that are coming out, especially around Qurbani, and we're coming into Qurbani in a month's time, already I'm seeing videos about Hindus that are talking about ready to kill Muslims who slaughter any animals on Qurbani. That's how bad it's become. And unfortunately, we India is now majority Hindu, Muslims are a minority. I fear for them wanting on the day of Eid, because if those people even secretly want to slaughter a cow or slaughter a sheep or a goat or something. These people are ruthless. They will chop them up. And, you know, from past videos that we've seen, Allah protect the Muslims in that country because they're going through a very difficult time at this moment. And things don't look like it's going to get any better. So I said it in the past, even on the show, I said people in India need to consider and reconsider their position in India because things are not getting good at all. Until we don't get an Imran Khan who's willing to take over and, and to stand for what he believes are the rights of the Muslims, and somebody strong uh, in that vicinity, the Hindus are going to continue to perpetrate injustices against the Muslims. Yeah, you know, it's uh, very ironical you say that, because I was just watching a uh, press release uh, from uh, the Indian government where they're turning the tables on him. Ran Khan and says, you know, his wife, uh, uh, what the general Munir wanted to investigate his wife, uh, Bushra, and uh, that's why he, uh, you know, didn't want him there and uh, wanted him dismissed and so forth. But it seems as if uh, that, uh, you know, yeah, that the uh, Indian government is gloating in what is happening to Imran Khan. And it seems as if the Westerners or the Western world, uh, you know, there are some because uh, maybe, you know, he's, uh, because of his ex-marriage uh, with uh, uh, Jamema that uh, some Western outlets are quite sympathetic uh, to the cause of Imran Khan. And some of them giving uh, the, uh, the 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 right narrative of the of already what's happening in uh, in Pakistan because for the first time they say uh, women are being arrested and put into jails and thousands and thousands of his supporters are in jail and uh, the the only uh, 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 the only institution that is uh, uh, saving. Uh, Pakistan are, are, are its courts, and uh, yeah, the, this uh, rogue government is all out to even destroy that institute and make um, uh, you know uh, Pakistan into a, into a despotic uh, uh, rule country, uh, Mohammed. So we've learned the lesson, and Imran Khan was the one, the first one, maybe to publicize it was that if you don't bow down to the politics of America and to the demands of the Americans then you are unfortunately your 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 tenorship and your premiership and your presidency is going to be terminated very shortly and this is a to allow american forces into pakistan and to then you know 
to entertain them into his relationship with Russia was obviously uh, uh, created a problem for for him. And and similarly, we find that in South Africa, we're having the same thing. I mean, that whole issue with the ships and the arms going through to Russia created some sort of a lack of investment, or rather, uh, they created some sort of a, a, a mudslide. It could have consequences for this country. And the, the reality is, as much as, our, as we believe that we have politicians who are in charge of the country, they themselves have politicians who are in charge of them. And um, Pakistan... It's beset by corruption, much like this country. Pakistan is also beset by the religious differences. Pakistan is also set by a, a, a plethora of differences within the communities. You know, those people are the Patans, and those people are the Kurds, and those people speak a different, the Punjabis, and those people are like this, and Lucknowis. And so it, it has its own political differences. And unfortunately, what I've seen in Pakistan is the vast majority of people are ed- uneducated. The vast majority of people will not even recognize a good politician and honest politician like Imran Khan. And they would rather support corrupt individuals because they believe at the end of it, there's some financial benefit to them. So the situation in, 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 a, in a third world country, in an illiterate country, in an ignorant country like Pakistan is unfortunate. And yet, yet, you know, they have the potential... They have the, they have shown in the past that they can have some of the best universities in the world. They can have some of the best learning. They can have some of the best medical facilities. They can have some of the most beautiful parts of the world. Their tourism could be a level. But when you have despots in government, when you have corrupt politicians, when you have people that doubt, bow down to what America has to say, then Pakistan will come second when it comes to uh, when it comes to the interests of the country. Yeah, to summarize what you have said, Imran Khan, when he had taken over, alhamdulillah, he made sure that uh, tourism went uh, number one. He planted millions and millions of trees, uh, you know, made the whole country green again. Uh, The olive plantation was on the rise. Uh, For the first time in its history, Pakistan was exporting olive oil to the Middle East and so forth. And uh, then he remember he had MBS in that carriage and rode him around one street there. And anyway, it was happening for Pakistan. But as you say, uh, you know, Ahmad that used to say this very eloquently, uh, the congregation deserves the priest and the priest deserves the congregation. I'll leave it at that, uh, Muhammad. As we look at, uh, you know, uh, some of the questions that you would, uh, you know, you wanted me to address with you uh, was uh, what uh, rights uh, do creditors have over your property? That's a good one, uh, Muhammad. <laughs> so yes, now we come into the crux of today's discussion, and hopefully now everybody will pay me an ear. So, well, sometimes we get these questions setting in. You know that you know I'm in financial trouble. What would happen to my business? What happens to me? What happens to my assets? And um, obviously, in the interest of family security and family safety, people need to have these questions answered to the, so they know what's what's uh, what they need to face. So. Uh, Generally, you know, we, we, we need to differentiate as to debt. Sometimes people confuse the nature of debt and, you know, who is actually the debtor. So you may have a business trading under PTY Limited or a close corporation, and you may or may not have partners in there. But um, do you become personally liable and responsible for your debts? Legally, this is the, from the legal position, you own responsible for the company's debts under certain circumstances. That would include now, for example, where you sign personal suretyship um, from uh, for with a, a institution, a credit grantor. So if your supplier 
is to supply you with 100,000 and worth of stock, but you need to sign sure that tomorrow if I don't, the company goes insolvent or the company shuts its doors or something, I can knock on your door at the home where you're staying and I can, uh, I, I can collect on that debt. And you know, you make a decision based on that. You're under no obligation sign the surety if you if you obviously need the credit to continue trading then you um then you sign then you would sign these sureties and people don't think or rather people know and understand but pe- people don't think of worst case scenarios sometimes these worst case scenarios does befall a person that um, for some reason the company doesn't make good on its debt how do you as a director of a company then become responsible yes if you've signed personal surety ship if you have signed now to say that in the event of ABC PTY Limited un- being unable to pay this particular debt, I will repay the hundred thousand rand. And the company then defaults on payment. The creditor can then come through to you, knock on your door, and say, "Listen, what do you have?" And you'll say, "You know, I only got the house." So, so you know, you, you can do what you please. But I mean, the reality is, the house is an asset, and the creditor will have to make a decision whether it's prepared to foreclose on your house and take this house away from you, and. Um, and sell it at an auction to recover the debt. So that's in the case where a person is involved in a company and a business debt. But if it's a person in his personal capacity and he incurs the debt, for example, he's driving down the road, minding his own business, he's a person who keeps all his financial affairs in order. But lo and behold, um, he meets he meets up in an accident and damages somebody's expensive Mercedes Benz, and he ends up having owing somebody maybe five hundred thousand rand because the car's close to written off or something along those lines. He doesn't have the financial resources, neither does he have the equity uh, and the liquidity to pay the debt. And he, you know, he turns around and he says, "Well, unfortunately, I don't have the money. There's nothing you can do." It's not always the case. The creditor can actually. Uh, 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 launch an application or issue a summons to attach your house and sell your house um, in, in, in an auction. So generally what would happen is they would issue a summons and they would sue you and if you then lose the case, they then get, get judgment against you. You have a right to satisfy the judgment and if you're unable to satisfy the judgment, then they would come in and begin to attach your assets from your movable assets until your immovable assets until you basically exhausted all your financial resources. So yes, you know, you, you're buying properties. Sometimes you need to look at collect, uh, protective mechanisms in making sure that tomorrow, if I get into financial trouble, I'd like it to be that this house is then protected and safe. And you, have to, you then have to consider different mechanisms within which to acquire that particular property. Yeah, Mohammed. Uh, then you get the type of in- individual. You know, he knows he's having a merry old time, and he's uh, you know borrowing and borrowing and borrowing, and suddenly he finds that people are sending him lawyers' letters and so forth, and he looks at it accumulated a whole bunch of lawyers' letters, and then, then when the people are pressing him, and it so happens that they all happen to be Muslims like him, so he goes to the uh, uh, to the uh, Molana, and he says, Molana, this is the problem. You know, the brothers are after me; they're not giving me a break, and that. So he puts uh, Molana or the Alim in the front. And, uh, you know, perhaps we are so, you know, religiously conscientized that we, when an Alim is put in front of us, if we want to squeeze, uh, you know, blood out of a rock, we can't do it because the Molana is there. I mean, he will tell the whole community, he'll tell you what type of, uh, uh, you know, heart do you have for your fellow Muslim brother. Uh, talk to us about that scenario where, you know, Last resort, and this guy knows I have to go to an army. He'll save my soul. Uh, what's your thoughts on that, Mohammed? 
<laughs> she got an army, uh, army and get a, 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 a Tavis for that, man. <laughs> but the reality, the reality is you brought the more important point than what I discussed. The reality is you brought it now from the Sharia aspect. And I, when I introduced that discussion earlier, I mentioned from a legal aspect, and I think I repeated it for the purpose of clarity. But the legal aspect is not the Sharia aspect. I've learned early on in this career, and this was this is the type of advice I try to advise my clients, that you, you may run in this world, but you can only run six feet. Because eventually, if you owe somebody money, you need to make good on your debt. And irrespective of what the law allows you and what protection mechanisms there are in place, you need to find a mechanism to pay your debt. Because maybe we, you know, the, uh, the, the Mulanas today don't talk much about the seriousness of outstanding debts in a person's affairs. One of which is that the system refused to pray for the person who had a financial debt owing and outstanding on his head at the time of his death. So that's how serious the matter it is. Imagine on the day of Qiyamad if he has to adopt the same attitude, sallallahu alayhi wa and say, this person is a Muslim, is a believer in Islam, but uh, he owes debts and he returns his face away, well, how sad we'll become. So today we have to consider things from an Islamic perspective before we consider things from a worldly perspective. And if I owe you 100 rand, irrespective of the law says, the law may protect me and say, well, the matter is prescribed, meaning that the debt is over three years old and you've got no claim in the court of law. Yes, that exists in the law. Is there to protect the law up to a particular point, but from an Islamic perspective, even if a person comes back after 50 years and he says, you owe me so much amount of money, you can't rely on prescription. Prescription doesn't exist from an Islamic perspective. And apart from that, today we die, we're inheriting um, our parents' assets. And who actually asks, what debts did my parent have before I have? My father didn't have a lot of money. He left very little, for example. But my creditors, their rights are preferential to that of the beneficiaries. It means a father's, a son cannot inherit the assets of his father until all the debts of the father has been paid. And that's key and that's vital. It's important for us to remember that the creditors take preference. It doesn't mean your father has passed on, the debt is now written off. And you need to ask permission from the creditor to say, listen, my father doesn't have any money, you know, or very little. What's the situation? Are you prepared to write it off? And, you know, if he has rights, his rights need to be met because if rights don't get met in this dunya, it's going to get met in the year after. And it's unfortunate sometimes that we don't understand that we can't live a king's life always at the expense of our creditors. Sure, you know, today we have lifestyles and when a person dies, there was actually nothing, no underlying concrete structure no underlying assets to that estate. He lived, he used to drive expensive cars, but all the cars belonged to the bank. There was no, no equity involved in that. He used, to, he used to live in a beautiful house. End of the day, he owed money to the banks. Every business that he owned has liabilities associated. So a person has this lifestyle of the king. At the end of the day, he really is a pauper, and sometimes even worse than a pauper because he owes more than he owns. So it, those things in itself are very deceiving, we ourselves, everybody needs to take stock of themselves and ask themselves, if I die today, I may owe people money, but if I die today, do I have sufficient assets within my net worth to pay out my creditors? So be it if my children inherit zero, 
this is this is this is Allah's decree that what they will earn is directly from Allah. So if they don't earn anything, that's that's voluntary, so to speak. But my creditors are an obligation. It's a debt over my head. I may go to uh, to my grave with that debt. I may stand up on the day of Kiamat with that debt if it hasn't been fulfilled. But more than that, I think everybody should consider the position apart from the legal position. Consider it from an Islamic Sharia perspective and say to themselves, this protection mechanism I'm putting in place, is it jais? Is it, uh, is it is, is the best interest of anybody that I owe money to so that when I die, at least the debts are paid? Tell you, Muhammad, uh, brilliant indeed. You got me thinking deeply, deeply. So don't be that meretricious man. Meretricious man coming with these cars they showing you this that but he's all on the strength of the bank and you get exposed when you get into battle into falsehood Haq will prevail and uh, Mohammed you know brings us uh, to the next question what rights uh, does the council have over our properties okay so so remember that any property that you have in any area is subject to the uh, to the jurisdiction of your local municipality so it could be it could be Johannesburg Metro Council, and they have bylaws, municipal bylaws, that dictate the nature of your property. So, for example, today, if we're going to build a property, your architect will look at um, certain things. He'll, he'll look at, for example, what is the zoning of your property. If you want to build a block of flats and your zoning is not conducive to that, or if you want to build a shop, and your zoning is not conducive to that. So all things have to be considered in terms of the natural bylaws. And as part of it is the zoning of property, whether it's commercial, it's business, business one, business two, residential one, residential two, residential three. These are some of the uh, the, 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 the various zoning issues a person considers. Then height restrictions, you can't build a five-story building in a residential area, maximum zoning requirements, floor area ratios, densities, a whole lot of things people look at. These are municipally uh, imposed regulations. So, for example, when you're building a property, your neighbors have rights over you. And, you know, if you, for example, if you can see or there's, there's privacy issues, they may object to your building. For example, you know, they could be uh, swimming and your, your whole day you, you can see them from your backyard. That could be an issue. Or for example, blocking the natural sea view from Johannesburg. Or alternatively, you um, blocking the sunshine. You know, they don't get the sunshine whole day because you've got this humongous building. So neighbors have a right and they could even approach council sometimes and say to the council, listen, I don't like the way these plans are being structured and I'm going to object to it. And the municipality would give them a hearing. So, so neighbors have rights in terms of now your the usage of your properties, in terms of now even the noise that comes out, municipal bylaws mostly dictated, for example, parties and these things need to stop at 12 o'clock or animals need to have certain checks or there's certain rules and regulations regarding animals and animal controls and leaving animals at home all these things need to be met so once we acquire a property and more so more so you know you're talking about that when you're living in a body corporate a uh, sectional title complex or you're living in an estate then you have further uh, controls over this particular property so you can't even paint your house any color that you wish they sometimes have these rules and regulations that if you're going to burn needs to meet a certain quality that's because they're trying to standardize the area that's because they're trying to have some sort of similarity and image created with this particular area so if you're all going for a tuscan look you can't come there with a south indian look for example it's just the nature of things are so 
even regarding plans, they have specific architecture they recommend. Or builders, you have to go through these pre-vetted, qualified builders. You can't just have go and get your own brother down the road and tell him, listen, please come build my house for me. Yes, so you have a property, you believe that you have all the rights to these properties, but these properties, the property rights are obviously limited. It's tested against municipality bylaws. It's tested against the neighbors, and neighbors generally rely on the municipality to manage their concerns. So he doesn't need to approach you directly. He can actually uh, contact the local council officers and say, listen, does this guy have a plan? What's the nature of his plan? How is How come his building is so high? I like to object to that. And then he goes and he uh, lodges an objection. And next best thing, you got a building inspector. And the inspector is saying, you know what, you have a problem. Yeah. So yes, that's that's some of the rights that the local municipality has over your property. Then, uh, Mohammed, you know, the culture in this country is of corruption and so forth. And then you get the certain individual, he's got it all. And he's uh, so desperate in getting his building done, hook or by crook. And then he bribes the uh, building inspector. He builds a building. And, uh, you know, being uh, maybe a Muslim and in the, uh, in, the in, in the recess of his mind, he, he knows he's done wrong. But uh, that, you know, uh, getting uh, someone bribed, building that uh, property. And um, if a query is made, maybe 25, 30 or 40 years later after the person had passed on and his property had been taken by his, uh, you know, the, his, his, his uh, dependents and so forth, what happens then? Can If it's proven that, no, this person bribed uh, the officials 40 years ago, can something be done then, uh, Mohammed? I just need to answer the question with one line. Bribery is haram. End of story. Muslims, unfortunately, we the kingpins <laughs> when it comes to bribery. Look at look at all the politicians. Now, Becky Taylor was on the news the other day having Indian politicians behind him who are his uh, hired hitmen. I don't even know the full nature of the article. Be that as it may. Bribery is haram, but the Muslims are foremost when it comes to bribery. Even when we go for Hajj, we want to bribe our way somewhere along the line. All things said and done, the council's measures are there to protect you, protect your community, protect your neighbors, protect your family. So I give you an example. A person goes and he has building plans for ABC, but eventually, you know, he knows that it's not going to be ABC. I'm going to build XYZ. What I'm getting back from the council only shows these rooms are 40 square meters, but these rooms need to be 80 square meters. But because I won't legally be able to do 80 square meters, let me submit 40 square meter plans. And the plans come back approved. And next best thing, you know, he starts building and he's building all as he pleases. And the building inspector comes there. And I tell you, the building inspector knows where to get good quality samosas because he stays at every samosa in every house in Lens, for example. These guys are bribed when the minute they walk in the tea and the samosas and manure in uh, early days, we had these Afrikaner guys who would come to come to the doors and manure. So it's on your combina. What's the problem? He says, no, no, you're not building on the line. He says, yeah, man, you know, can you look the other way? And, you know, you give him a few hundred rand. So what happens is the person will end up building on top of a sewerage line. Yes, he builds on top of a sewerage line. A couple of things may happen. He gets his building, people live there, many happy years, many happy returns, everybody's going their merry way, and then a few years down the line, he decides he wants to sell the property. So he sells the property, he, uh, agreement of sale is concluded, the buyer takes it to his bank, the bank sets a valuation. And I'm telling you this is now 
from experience of the sewage servitude, this property seems to be legal. On the face of it, a person can look at it and say, there's no sewage lines running through here. Tomorrow, if there's a problem, you're going to have to break this building down because council has a right to maintain in, uh, the sewage lines. And if it means that your sewage lines have been, uh, have been um, uh, that you transgressed and you've prejudiced them with building on sewage lines, they will send you a nice court order to say you need to remove and break the following structure because we need access to our sewage lines. There may be a blockage. So one already potential buyers could then be in a problem because they won't get finances on that particular property. The bank has picked up. And um, without uh, now, when you want to sell the property, the purchaser is going to say, well, you need to bring approved plans, which is not by itself a legal requirement, but because specifically they notice there's something untoward about the building, they'll say, bring us approved building plans. And you're then going to go to an architect willing to fork out 30,000 rand or 50,000 rand for building plans. And the architect says, but I can't approve these plans. I can't get them approved because there's illegal building continuing. And what was supposed to be now uh, an investment, you now then have to consider then looking for alternative buyers, maybe reduce your purchase price, maybe knock down your building. Those are the options left to you. And or the worst case scenario is that when the council does decide that they're going to do audits and they're going to come around and start vetting, because nowadays everything in the system, everything is computerized, they come around and they say, but this does, building doesn't look right. They can apply to court for a demolition order for the part of the property that's not built in accordance with legal requirements. And you could find that you could be in hot water, unnecessary, trying to now remedy a situation which at the end of the day was only there to serve to protect you. If you want to build a 100 square meter house and the council is saying maximum 50 square meters, sell your house, buy, buy a bigger plot, move to into an area where 100 square meters would be um, the norm. Don't get yourself into unnecessary difficulty, unnecessary financial uh, inconvenience. Yeah, Mohammed, well said there. And uh, then uh, the scenario of having a difficult neighbor and some people, you know, they live in uh, lovely residential areas and have, uh, you know, beautiful buildings. But on either side, you've got difficult neighbors. What do you do then, Mohammed? <laughs> I'd like to say what you could do, but it would probably be illegal. But the legal response would be that... Um, Okay, let's do the Sharia response. From a Sharia response, I think we need to consider that our neighbors have rights over us. We need to be considerate of our neighbors. We should not be the type of neighbors from hell, and we don't expect our neighbors to do the same. There's, 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 there's hadith to the effect, to the effect that Nabi said that neighbors have so many rights, I was concerned that they may even be included in your world, in your inheritances. So, yes, I think one of the blessings of this world is having good neighbors. And one of the most trying things for, 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 for people is having difficult neighbors. I've seen, I've seen people have come to me over the many years where the, the, the differences between the neighbors escalated. There's a prominent Ali uh, currently fighting a high court uh, matter with his neighbors because he's trying to build and these non-Muslim neighbors are giving him a, a hard time. So as a result of which he's lost all hope, he's become absolutely despondent in now investing in this property because he spent a huge fortune acquiring this property, intention to extend it and make it comfortable for his elderly parents and for himself. And at the end of the day, this is such 
situation because of difficult neighbors. And he feels primarily because they Jews, and I'm a Muslim, that they're purposely making my life difficult and I'm spending hundreds of thousands of rands. So, yes, well known personality in the community. You definitely know him, but the purpose is obviously of people's privacy. I can't. When you see from these people's eyes when it comes to difficult neighbors, you know, sometimes these things even end up in death because. You know, you're constantly being harassed, constantly fighting, and there's constant issues with your neighbors. Yes, that's so. You know, we may we pray that Allah gives us good neighbors. It's one of the blessings of this world that we have good neighbors. And uh, yes, that's that's the long and short of the neighbor story. Yeah, as you say, that's a long and short of uh, the neighbor story. But Alhamdulillah, you know, it's an important story to talk about uh, because the neighbors uh, make you or break you. But that, that's why, you know, the importance of uh, as a Muslim uh, being in a predominantly uh, area where you have uh, your Muslim brothers and uh, sisters living next to you. You have the masajids, you have all the ethos of being Islamic. Whereas, you know, you're looking for trouble where you're going to a predominantly area that is, uh, you know, uh, Islamophobic. You're looking for trouble, and then you start feeling sorry, uh, sorry for yourself, uh, Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad, can you hear me? It seems as if, uh, yeah, we're having. Oh, some... sorry, sorry. Yeah, okay. we're having some issues. But I'm saying the uh, advantage of having good neighbors was, at least in the apartheid era, we lived in. Uh, uh, monocultural environment, you know, people generally ate similar dishes and people understood each other better and the azan could be made in a way that people uh, could re respected us as Muslims and we and, uh, allowed, you know, for certain uh, cultural differences to, to take place in the community. But yes, now that we're living in a multicultural, uh, multiracial of different challenges and unfortunately you know this is the situation that we have to be become more tolerant we have to consider i mean look at the issue of the zan now that played out in the high court two years ago in the masjid and um, as a result of which you know the whole country now has to has to consider we, there's lessons from both for both sides that we have to consider that if you're going to now living in an environment when you're building new masjids and uh, what's going to happen? I mean, even I was in Cape Town uh, not so long ago, and you know there was issues from some of the communities that the masjids need to tone down the fajr azan because it's much too loud. And um, yes, this is this is some of the challenges I think that we have to consider when we purchase property, we invest in property, we live in communities. Can you, uh, Mohammed? Uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, evening in your company. MashaAllah, you, uh, you know, fired on all cylinders are uh, giving us a very comprehensive, uh, uh, you know, answering to Allah bless you for that. And, uh, you know, you do it with so much of enthusiasm that alone uh, shows, uh, you know, what a lovely disposition you have. Uh, very refined indeed. Perhaps your parting words uh, before we let you go. Gee, Jazakallah, once again, you know, it's always on your show and allowing me to share my thoughts with your listeners. It, uh, at least there's some benefit from the years of experience alhamdulillah that we're able to offer to the community and once again to yourself as a host for being a gracious and generous host your radio station for allowing me to express my views and allowing me to share some of my thoughts Jazakallah reward all of you and assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to our very own Hafiz attorney Muhammad Kuvadia. Time for us uh, to go for the Isha Azan and inshallah we will continue after that.